Last time we left off in Exodus chapter 2, verse 15. And we saw that Moses, when he had become full grown, so he had been raised in the Egyptian dynasty of Pharaoh. And at the age of 40, he realized, I, I am not comfortable in the palace. Uh, my heart does not find the treasures of Egypt my delight, but my delight is actually in the Messiah. And you say, how do you know that? Because we ended last time with Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 to 27. It says, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Jesus said, if you can gain the whole world and lose your soul, what profit did you really have? Because life is just a vapor. And so he knew that this is just a vapor. I'm already 40 years old, and, and my life is fleeting away. And what is all the, 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 the money and gold and pleasures? What is that getting me? I'm, I'm shallow. I'm empty. But it says in Hebrews 11:26, esteeming the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. And by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So there was this deep faith in his heart to just see the fulfillment of the blessing that God gave to Abraham, that in you, in your seed, all the nations, all the people groups of the world shall be blessed. And to whatever degree Moses understood that would be in the Messiah, that God would give. And then in Acts 7, 23 to 29, Stephen, by the Holy Spirit, right before he was the first martyr and stoned to death, he gives us a commentary. The best commentary on the Bible is what? The Bible, man. These guys know what they're talking about. And so he says, Stephen says, as he's preaching, uh, angering the, the Pharisees of that day, he says, when he was 40 years old, and there we know, he came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them, and they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he did uh, but he who did his neighbor wrong, so he's, he's saying, you're in the wrong, you're not in the wrong. So he's being a judge. He's discerning. He's not saying, hey, you're both wrong, you're both right, you know, let's all get along. He's saying, no, you, you're the one in the wrong here. He pushed him away. This guy's like, hey, who are you to judge me? Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? So the guy that has wronged his brethren is going, I don't like your judgment. And what are you going to do? What kind of judgment are you going to bring on me? You're going to kill me? And that's how you figure out who's wrong and, and you kill him? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. And so... Um, we see that, that Moses, at 40 years old, was, was thinking what God has been stirring up in me. 
He is speaking to the whole nation of, of Israel, and we're all on the same page. And he just assumed this. And he probably, because he had talked to some people that were thinking, man, I think God put you in there, Moses, in the house of Pharaoh, because this is such a huge strategical advantage. And, and realizing how you feel about the oppression and the slavery that we're undergoing, you know, what an amazing position. And, and if Pharaoh dies, you are the new Pharaoh. Man, I, I can just see how this, woohoo, man, this is happening. And Moses is starting to step into that, even though Pharaoh's not dead, even though he doesn't have a, a position. And of course, every Egyptian was a god. And so in Moses killing another Egyptian, even though he was Pharaoh's son, that would be a death penalty. And so he, he realized, uh, man, I, I am shocked at this Hebrew's heart. And if he's telling people and if people saw it, it's getting going to get back to Pharaoh really quick. I've got to get out of town. And so that's where we come in verse 16 tonight. So now he flees at 40 years old and he goes down to Midian and there was a priest there. Now, I, I, this is going to be interesting because I, I really want us to take notice who Moses was, who Jethro was, who, what kind of state was the children of Israel in when God called them his children? and called them to himself. They were a bunch of idolaters. They're down there worshiping all kinds of gods. They're worshiping all the Egyptian gods. And, and so when Moses is like, yeah, I've been setting for the last 40 years under this Midian priest over here, Jethro with all his crazy beliefs, like, who are you? <laughs> you know, in the maze and the fog of, of things, who, who are you? And this is interesting because if you just sort of in your mind say, I'm just going to read the book of Genesis and pretend there's no other Bible. All, all I know about God is what the book of Genesis says. You, you realize they knew very little about God. The light, the specific revelation. Now, there's a general revelation of creation, which is enough that man will have no excuse before God. Just by creation itself, it speaks of God's existence. It speaks of his nature. It speaks uh, God's Holy Spirit is convicting us and, and drawing us unto Christ. So no man's going to have an excuse. But the specific revelation only comes through the word of God. And they really didn't have a lot of specifics on God at this time. And so Moses, with whatever knowledge he had, he goes down to Midian. This guy's a priest out here. He had seven daughters, which is a liability in those days. Uh, but they came and they drew water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And shepherds came and drove them away. They're just a bunch of girls. These guys come along, treat them harshly. Uh, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. Uh, you, you guys remember that? Charleston Heston, you know, coming up with this. Anyway, it's, it's an old movie you should definitely watch. It's one of the greatest movies of all time. But anyway, um, the, these guys, you know, before uh, Moses. Now, it gives you, again, an idea. Because in the book of Acts, Stephen said, that at this time, Moses was a man mighty in word and in deed. Josephus, the historian, said he was 
the greatest military commander at the time, and he had led the Egyptian troops into a battle against the greatest army of the time, the Ethiopians, and defeated them. And so I think he was a, a tall, strong warrior. And when he stood up with all, against all these guys, they all backed down, which, which is going to be interesting in contrast <laughs> when he's 80 years old. And so he drove them away. And so they came to Ruel, who is going to also be called Jethro. So he has a couple of names here. And he said, how is it that you have come um, so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So when he fled, he still looked like an Egyptian in his garb. And he said to his daughters, where is he? Man, a, 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 a guy with flesh and blood who, who doesn't dislike us, um, let's go get that guy. There's, they're hard to find out here in the middle of the desert. I got seven of you gals. I need to get you married off. So what is that? You left a man out there? Go get that man. Call him here that he may eat bread. And so Moses uh, now, between 20 and 21, is we're going to find 40 years going by. So now it's going to give a commentary over these last 40 years. So in that time, Moses was content to live with the man. He gave Zephora his daughter to Moses. She bore a son. He called his name Gershom, which means I'm a stranger, and I'm in a strange land. I have been a stranger in a foreign land. I'm a stranger in a strange land. But it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. They cried out. And there came up to God because of the bondage. And God heard their groanings. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. And so interesting that we find Moses. I, I, I couldn't imagine growing up as the richest guy in your kingdom. I mean, you never made your bed. <laughs> you, you probably never wiped your own nose. You probably had guys, you know, people wash you and clothe you and comb your hair. And you, you never made a fire or fixed a mill. You probably never even walked. They probably just carried you everywhere. And, and to be in, you know, an exciting city like our, our country there of Egypt and, and to be in that place where all the animals and languages and foods and all the modern conveniences are flowing. It, it would just be hard to imagine to be content anywhere else. As Americans, if you've traveled other parts of the world, you, you know it's hard to match what we have here, even in, you know, uh, something that would be a, a, a motel that you, you wouldn't really want to be in here in America. That's like the hotel you're trying to get in other places. And, and, and so here, we, we just see that Moses is depleted. He's coming, and he's now going to not even have his own sheep. He's just going to tend another man's sheep. And again, remember the Egyptians. We learned in Genesis that they thought shepherds were an abomination. That was the lowest, the lowest of the caste. And whether you, whether you like your prejudice or not, when you've been raised, brainwashed with prejudice, 
even when you get it out and you hate it and you despise it, it still subconsciously um, plagues you. You know, it really does. And, but here he is. I mean, you, you got to understand, he, he's, he's, it's like somebody here, you know, working down at the third level of the septic tank of San Diego every day. You're climbing down three stories into the septic tank, cleaning out the septic tank to make sure everybody's sewage is working good or something. It, it, it was just a, a, a unbelievable place. But not only didn't it that, but, it, but over 40 years, he didn't even have his own sheep. He, he had no will to try to create his own little business, which you'd think somebody like Moses, a man mighty in word and deed, who probably got, had his doctorate <laughs> in leadership and economics of the day, uh, military man. I mean, you, you just, he definitely had, uh, at that time at 40, sort of an A-type personality, it seemed like. He saw it, he had a vision, he was gonna, you know, take these three million people, two, three million people, and lead them out of Egypt, you know? It, it, that's, that's huge. I mean, it's, that's a great undertaking. And, uh, but now we find that he's, he's just content to, you know, you think about a shepherd, man. They get up in the morning, they open the gate, they walk real slow, <laughs> stand out in the field and look around, let the sheep catch up and take a few more steps and you wander around and then you wander over by some water and then you wander back and you shut the gate and you say, how you doing, honey, what happened? Oh, just walked around, threw a couple of rocks, <laughs> practiced with my slingshot, shot a few arrows, Saw a hawk. Whoa, that was exciting. I mean, it, it's just, and you do that day after day after day. 40 years of that. What kind of, what kind of person is that going to make into? That's a shepherd. Somebody that can just plug along with the sheep. Uh, Ray Comfort, who is a great evangelist, a good friend of mine, he says that the longest 10 years of his life was the six months he pastored a church. <laughs> if you're not called to be a shepherd, it, it, it's a grind. And I don't think it's possible. But yet Moses here now is, is just content with being a simple man. I love this thing in verse uh, and I just might add, again, it is, a, it is a thing that God wants to build into all of us, this godliness with contentment, that, that we are content with, with Jesus. That if we have things or don't have things, it's okay. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Remember uh, Rockefeller, he said, you know, what's your goal in life? He said, to make a million dollars. He did that in a few months. They said, what's your goal in life now? To make $2 million. <laughs> he did that even in a shorter time. They said, what's your goal now? To be the richest man in the world. A million dollars didn't make him content. He thought it would. Two million didn't make him content. And of course, when he you know, basically became the billionaire of his day, uh, it still didn't satisfy him. And so you know, a wealthy man is not a man who has something. A wealthy man is a man who's content with what he has. Right? And uh, that's, that's a very important point. And so Moses, there, there was, as we're going to see, there's this work of God going on in his heart. And he's become content with the most basic, basic things 
that the world has to offer even to this day. But it happened in, I love this, the process of time. Time seems like an enemy, doesn't it? Time seems like it's not enough, it's fleeting. But then also time can be a healer, right? Get distance between you and something bad that happened a year ago or 10 years ago. Time heals. Time's an interesting thing. But with God, he's outside of time, so time is always perfect for him. It says Christ died at the perfect time, at the exact time. You know, I love that prophecy in Daniel where it says, you know, uh, there in Daniel 9, basically 173,880 days the Messiah, the Prince, would come. And if you do the math, the day that Jesus rode in on the donkey saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, bless thee, came in the name of the Lord, was prophesied 490 or 83 years earlier. It was prophesied the exact day that Christ would come. And so when we look at this, you're saying, man, Moses, you got in the flesh, you tried it in your own strength, in your own fleshly strength, deliver the children of Israel. Yeah, God was speaking to you, but he wasn't saying you do it in your own power. And now God just had to burn up 40 years, just a big waste of 40 years. And now you're 80 years old. And now God's going to start trying to work with you, what he was trying to do, 40 years ago, but you've been all fleshly for the last 40 years. So, you know, so he, he had to burn all that fleshliness out of you to finally get a hold of you. So, no. And, and if Moses thought that way, and I think Moses might have thought that way, as we're going to see as we go on in Exodus, Moses is sort of like, the time's passed. You know, I'm over that. <laughs> I've been over that for decades. You know, for the first 10 years, I was thinking, yeah, you know, once I hit 50, I'm like, yeah. And then 60, yeah, definitely not. Now 80, I mean, come on, I forgot about that years ago. I mean, 40 years being a shepherd would seem probably like 300 years, right? <laughs> and, and, and believe me, it was, it was more than a lifetime ago. But let me just ask you the question. If Moses was talking to you going, dude, I mean, 40 years. I, I haven't been in any place of leadership. I haven't really talked to anybody but my father-in-law and my, my wife and my couple of kids for decades. I mean, I, I don't even know how to be socially around people anymore. I mean, don't, don't you think that, that th this is just crazy? That I would go back to Egypt and, and be a leader for these people? Me? I mean, we know now, what would we say? Moses, those 40 years, not one second was wasted. Every year in the desert was God preparing you for this moment at the age of 80. Wouldn't we say that? 41st year wasn't a waste. The 42nd wasn't a waste. Your 78th birthday wasn't a waste. Every year. And guess what? God always had in his mind a perfect time. It was 80, not 40. But you thought it was 40, and you thought all of your circumstances made you the key guy. But in honesty, none of those circumstances made a difference either way. None of those circumstances God was going to use. But it, it was a part of, of who you are, a 
part of who you were in those, those first 40 years was, was what God had planned for you to see. Do you, do you think when Moses at 80 went and saw Pharaoh and all his pomp and glory and gold and silver and big dress, and do you think any of that was impressive to Moses? He's like, dude, this, this place has gone to, to pot since I lived here. Man, look at that. You need to repaint that golden statue over there. And man, this carpet, man, I remember back when I was here, we had some really cool carpet in here, man. And this place has really run down since I was here 40 years. I mean, it, he wasn't going to be impressed. He wasn't going to be intimidated. He's, he's been there and done that. He lived in that palace. Because, so you know, that 40 years, the first 40 years wasn't a waste. The second wasn't either. And, and I'll just simply say this. When God calls us to go, especially as we get older, we're not going to fill it. <laughs> just like Moses didn't fill it. Hey, Moses, I'm calling you to go. Not feeling it, God. You know, I you know I had this little stroke a few years ago, and ah, this right side of my body, and I sort of droop out of this side of my face now. And you know, I used to be a man mighty in word and deed, and now I just sort of slur a lot, you know, and dribble out the side of my cheek. I, you know, I yeah, you know, I, I'm 80 years old. I'm I'm. You need to find somebody you know younger and you know would like to do this. I don't want to do it. I'm not feeling it. Understand, as you get older, you're not feeling it for like 99% of things, right? I mean, but especially to go and confront. Go and take people in bondage and get them out of bondage. I mean, Moses basically had a no-stress lifestyle for 40 years, and God is saying, your next 40 years are going to be the most stressful years anybody could imagine. I'm going to give you about two to three million complaining, murmuring people that you can't please, even if, uh, I don't know, I brought bread out of heaven or water out of a rock. They still be unhappy. I'm not feeling it, God. You know, I, I just, I, I, don't, I don't think this is a good idea. But this is what God does to all of us. You know, I love that statement, you know, where in Matthew 28, the last words is Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That was the last thing Jesus said. And since then, he didn't say stop, slow down, take a break, put it in pause. The last thing he said was go. And I'm not feeling it. It's okay. You don't have to feel it. Do the work of an evangelist. But I'm not feeling it, I, I know, but it's to your shame that people around you don't have the knowledge of Christ. And it's to your shame. Go. So Moses here, in the process of time, God makes all things beautiful in his time. I love that passage in Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore the Lord will wait <laughs> that he may be gracious to you. And therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So interesting in that verse, Isaiah 30, first it says, the Lord's waiting on you. 
to get to the place you need to be so he can be merciful and gracious with you. And then blessed are you who are waiting on the Lord for his perfect timing. I, I just, I just, it just amazes me when I look at that verse. God's like, I'm waiting for you to say yes. I'm waiting for you to respond. I'm waiting for you to, to let go of whatever fleshly strength or lack of faith or lack of trust. Or I'm waiting on you to start seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness so he can do what he wants to do through you. But then blessed are you too who are waiting on the Lord to, to raise up and to do what he's doing in his timing. It's a beautiful thing. Well, in chapter 3 here, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro. Notice it says, instead of Ruel this time, it says Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. We're going to learn a lot about that. So he comes out to the backside of the desert. The backside. He got a BS. A BS, uh, the backside diploma of just being out in the middle of nowhere. It's interesting that God does that literally or metaphorically to, to just about all of us. He takes us to a place that's very alone. In Jeremiah 3, he says God's doing that very, very thing. When you see God putting you in that backside, in, in Lamentations 3, Jeremiah says, just put your face in the dust and wait for this salvation of the Lord. It's good that a man bear his yoke in his youth. It's good that a man bear it alone. It's good that a man just puts his face in the dust and waits for the salvation of the Lord. And I know with my kids, all of them at one time or another said to me, I just don't have any friends. You know, I don't, you know, I don't, blah, 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 you know. And I'm like, this is God doing it. I know, it's a good thing. You know, your two best buddies move there or move there or whatever. It's good. It's good. This is, this is a season God's created, whether it's 14 or 19 or whatever that season is. Just embrace it. It's you and Jesus. <laughs> let, let, him, let him just take you to that lonely place and you have no relational things met except in him. That this is God's design. This is God's plan. It was Moses and God. But interesting enough, even there, Moses was having a hard time hearing God. But if you look to the scripture, this is a pretty common thing. You know, Paul, right after he was saved, was taken to the Arabian desert for three years. Of course, Jesus was in the desert uh, at the beginning of his ministry, tempted by the devil. But also, Jesus continued to go to the desert to get away by himself. It tells us in Luke 5, 16. And, and then Jesus in Mark 6, 31, he took his disciples often to a deserted place. But we've got to go to the valley. We've got to go to the dry place. We've got to go to the desert before God can take us to the mountain. And so... God now comes and, and, and he speaks to Moses. And notice in verse 2, the angel, I want to make a note of that. I'm going to come back to it in a minute. But the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why this bush does not burn. So 
we know God as the God of fire, right? The God of light. Matter of fact, in, in Hebrews 12, verse 28, it says, we have learned to serve God with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. We, we know that. We know that our God is, is a consuming fire. The day of Pentecost, what was it? Cloven tongues of fire came upon each of them, and they spoke in, a, in an unknown tongue. And so here, Moses, he, he's, man, he has seen all kinds of stuff in the desert, but bushes out there, when they catch on fire, it's a Christmas tree. You guys know how those things is, it's over. But this thing's burning and burning and burning and like a log or something. It just keeps on burning. And, and he's, you know, slowly creeping over towards this light. And he gets over there and this bush is, is burning, which again sort of tells me that, that God had to do something pretty unique to get Moses in a place just to listen to him. So even though Moses was alone, Moses was in the desert, I, he wasn't tuning into God's channel. He wasn't able to hear the Lord speaking to him. And so God, as he's gracious and wonderful always, will do what it takes, right? To get us to be in awe of him and wonder of him and say, you're God, I'm not it's not about my plans for my life. It's about your plans for my life. And yes, I would like to be in a stress-free environment, but you may have a stressful environment to put me in. I'd like to be around nobody, but it may be your will to put me around everybody. I'd like to be out here in the desert, but you may want to put me in the mountains or in the middle of the city. It's amazing how a lot of people run to the desert to try to retire and live out their days out in the desert, away from as many people as they can. But here, it says here that the angel of the Lord spoke, and then in verse 4, so when the Lord saw that, he turned aside to look. So the Lord said, wow, okay, finally got him. Hook, reeling him in. God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. I'm sure he probably said it in a high-pitched voice. Here I am. Whoa, whoa. That bush just talked to me. I mean, I don't think Moses was expecting this thing to talk. I think it probably would have freaked him out. I don't know about you, but I'm going up to look at a fire, and all of a sudden the fire starts talking. You know, you wonder if the fire, like, made lips or something, you know. And ooh, I don't know. It was, it, would, it, was, uh, it was a bit freaky. He wasn't expecting that. And God said twice, Moses, Moses. And he said, do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off your feet for this place where you stand is holy ground. So, again, um, you look at these concepts. It's the first time. Understand God is a holy God, a, a God who's a consuming fire, a God who says, I am holy and I need to be revered. You can't come into the presence of God and live. No man shall see God and, and live. Later, Moses would say, well, I want to see, talk to you face to face, God even though he had been talking God face to face, I want to see you. And God says, nobody can see me and live, Moses. And Moses is like, well, I still want to see you. And God said, okay, I can let you see the trailing edge of my glory. But he didn't understand. But at this point, when the voice spoke and, and his heart was gripped 
with the sense of God's holiness and reverence, he, he quickly takes off his shoes. But also, I think it's because God doesn't want anything between us and him. You know, it, it's just a precious thing when you have a brand new little baby and you have no shirt on and you just hold that baby against you. There's something about nothing between you. And, and I think God is just saying, I want nothing be, be between us spiritually and literally. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Remember, Jacob said, I saw God face to face when he wrestled with the Lord. I saw God face to face, and I'm, I didn't die. I'm still alive. Now, let's look at the titles here of God. First of all, we saw in verse 2, he's called the angel of the Lord. But then as we go on, we realize the word Lord, notice here, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In the Hebrew, there's two words for Lord. One's Adonai and the other's um, the Tetragrammaton. We don't have any vowels with it. It's just Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H. Some of the older translations will say Jehovah. Some of the newer translations will say Yahweh or Yah. Um, but the way it's distinguished in, in a lot of Bibles is like this. It gives one Lord with the all capital letters referring to the Tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H or the Y-H-V-H. And then in another place, um, it has capital L and then lower cases O-R-D. That's the word Adonai. And the Hebrews, when they wrote this Tetragrammaton, they did not believe they could write the name of God. And so when they came to this, when they were writing the, the, they were, the Masoretes were writing the scriptures, before they would pin that, these words, Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H, they would put down their pen, they would go bathe, they would get brand new clothes on, a brand new pen, a brand new quill, brand new ink, and then worship and then write the name until they came to it again. This is the holy name of God. And so here it, it, it is telling us that Yah, Yahweh, is speaking to him. And then he makes it clear, this is the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So now you ask the question, well, what does it say angel then? Good question. Now, when you're doing translation, it, it can be very, very tricky to try to figure out uh, from the original what to do in your particular language. I know uh, the Wycliffe translators were in, uh, I believe it was South America, and they were having to go back home as they were translating the Bible for this one particular indigenous group. And they tried to explain to him what a sheep was. And they said, oh, it's very similar to your llama. And uh, when they came back, they continued the translation. But every time, you know, it wasn't a, a sheep. It was a llama everywhere they had uh, written. And they said, no, 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 you can't do that. You just have to write the original Hebrew word for that and then to explain to that what that is. So it can get a bit tricky. So in this particular case, what you do is you come to a, what's called a first usage. So where's the first time this word in the Hebrew would be used and what does it actually mean? 
And then you basically say to yourself, okay, if we use that word, so this is the word messenger, it could also be the word word, and it could be the word angel, it's the same word. So they basically, the translators said, when we see this word, unless we absolutely cannot do it, we're gonna translate it angel consistently through the Old Testament, which really is sort of unfortunate because now in our day and age, it, it has a, a, a very different context in our English language where we don't ask ourselves, And so probably it would have been better to translate it messenger. And then of course in the John, the Gospel of John, Jesus says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, or the word. I, I personally think this would be, and the word spoke, the word of the Lord appeared to him. It's Jesus. And later we find in the Gospels, indeed, this is Jesus who spoke to Moses. But Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons, they get their faulty doctrine from this. They, they say, oh, Jesus is an angel. And here's how we can prove it. But guys, look in context. And that's again, when you look in context, it, it, it pretty much is self-explanatory what that word means. So clearly the angel is Yahweh, the angel clearly says, I'm God, right? So this is the messenger. And it's a, it's a, it's a point I'm going to talk about later uh, as we get on to Exodus 20. But, or excuse me, actually Deuteronomy 6. But right now, I just want to start here that the Lord God said in verse 7, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I knew their sorrows. So I came down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them. Wow. You know, you, you see the children of Israel throughout history, even to modern times, where most Jews, as a matter of fact, the largest population of atheists is Jews in the world of a people group. And they basically point out the times of oppression, saying, there can't be a God because we wouldn't have gone through the Holocaust or we wouldn't have gone through all these various times in, in our history where we were practically destroyed or horribly oppressed like no other people on the earth were oppressed. So as they would say today, if we're God's chosen people, ask God to choose somebody else. But it's spiritual. We're in a spiritual world. This is Satan. He's out to steal and kill and destroy. He hates everything God loves. And, 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 but yet, at the same time, we see that God is allowing them to go through this bondage for a time period as he sees fit, as he sees best. And this is going on for sure the last 40 years since Moses was there. And of course, before that, when Moses was a baby, they were throwing the babies into the river, the, the male child killing them. So that was another 40 years. So we know for sure for 80 years, probably 100 or more years, they're under serious oppression. And we often do the same thing, don't we? God, why is this dragging on and on and on and on and on? Are you hearing any of my prayers? Are you even there anymore? Are you on vacation? What's going on, God? 
And, and we just got to remember, God sees it. He knows. We're crying out to him, and he's hearing every single cry. And then in verse 10, he says, Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I certain, I will certainly be with you, and you shall be a sign to it will be a sign to you. I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So I'm going to give you a prophecy. Because you're going to be going, after you get him out of Egypt, it's going to be a hard time. <laughs> but there's going to be a point when you come out of Egypt, you're going to be ready to quit. But I want you to remember, when you're standing with all the children of Israel at this place, even though you've got another 40 years to go, and it's going to be a pretty miserable last 40 years of your life, just, just remember, if God brought me this far, he's going to take me the rest of the way, right? And that's just a wonderful thing. If, if, if God's past faithfulness tells us that we should trust in him right now, and that's in essence what he's saying. And so that's the sign I'm going to give. And Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, Well, what is his name, and what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. I wonder what the inflection of the voice was, you know. What? I am. I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So the first meaning of this is God is basically saying, Which God? There is no other God. What are you talking about? There is only one God. So uh, the God is right now that's talking to you, that God. There's only one. And in essence, God is saying, I'm here right now, but I'm, I'm always in the now. Because to God, the past and the future are not known better or less. God doesn't like, wow, now that we've gone through that, I can really see clearly. God sees the past and the future and the present equally. He's outside of time. Isaiah 45, verse 5 and 6 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. There's no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that you may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. The second part of this we understand as the Bible goes on that God is in essence saying, I am right now what it is you need. So we, we will discover these names of God, like Yahweh Jireh, or Yahweh Yireh, God the provider, Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals, Yahweh Shalom, the God our peace, Yahweh Titskanu, God our righteousness, Yahweh Roy, uh, the Lord our shepherd, Yahweh Shama, uh, the Lord is there. El Roy, God is seen, and that's what he is right now, he's seen their bondage. Then we discover in the New Testament, especially the Gospel of John, Jesus is the fulfillment of the I am. In John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, 9, I am the door. In John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, 25 and 26, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
In John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 15, 5, I am the vine. In John 18, verse 4, 5, and 6, Jesus says to the arresting officers, who do you seek? And they said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they all fell to the ground, backwards to the ground, when he said, I am. Even though in the translation it says, I am he, it's actually just, I am. Well, in verse 15, finishing up, moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. We're going to talk more about that in the future. And they will heed your voice and you shall come you and the elders of Israel to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go out empty handed. But every woman shall ask her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder Egypt. So Moses, I'm going to prophesy right now. And you are going to go as a prophet to these people. You're going to go to the children of Israel. And then you're going to tell them that God's going to deliver you. And, and then you're going to be talking to the elders. And you're going to convince them that they all need to go and tell Pharaoh, we need to go and honor the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is interesting because they were all worshiping other gods. As a matter of fact, if you remember, after 40 years, when Joshua is finally ready to take him into the promised land, they still had idols from Egypt they were worshiping. But hey, you know, this is a new thing to us, but we need to get this right. And, and uh, we need to all go out three days journey away and we need to worship God there. And this is my sovereign predestined plan. Pharaoh is gonna say no. And as we're gonna find out, Pharaoh's gonna harden his heart, but then God's gonna harden Pharaoh's heart. And then God continues to do miracle, greater miracle, greater miracle, greater miracle. And it's necessary for the children of Israel to understand who God is before they go out of Egypt, but also to understand his power. And so God's going to just, in a dynamic way for almost a year, reveal himself through a mighty hand not only to Egypt, but all the children of Israel. And then they don't have to war against Egypt to take the spoils of Egypt. God's just going to touch the hearts of all the Egyptians to just say, I want to give all my gold to you. <laughs> I want to give all my silver to you. Here you go. Well, shouldn't you hang on to at least one pair of earrings? Nope, it's all yours. 
And so the children of Israel are going to go out with all the spoils of Egypt without having to fight one Egyptian. They're just going to go out because God had touched all of their hearts to do so. Pretty radical, isn't it? When we just start understanding who God is, his nature. See, this, this, is, this is the joy. This is the glory of man. God said it's not the mighty man that can glory in his might. It's not the rich man that can glory in his riches. It's not the, the um, see, mighty man, rich man, some, one other guy. Who, who is it? The wise man. There it is. Well, that was, that was uh, unfortunate. The wise man glory in his wisdom, but he who glories glory in this, that he understands and know me. His name, his nature. And we're starting to understand that God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the one thing they said constantly with Jesus, there's no partiality with you. What you'll do for the Jew, you'll do for the Gentile. What you'll do for the poor, you'll do for the rich. You'll do for the woman, you'll do for the man. You'll do for the sinner, you'll do for the religious guy. You, you, you're, you're good to all. And, and here we are. If God's thinking this way here, guess how God's thinking about you? He knows you right down to every hair on your head. And what we walk away here tonight is there's no coincidences in God's kingdom. Do you understand that? Say to somebody next to you, there's no coincidences in God's kingdom. Not one. Not one. That's it. Come on, guys. Pat, no, quit talking. You guys get that done. That's it. God, there's no waste of time. Boy, that was a wasted year. No, it wasn't. That was a wasted trip. No, it wasn't. That was a wasted... No, it wasn't. God, God is using everything. He knows he's had you in behind you before. There's no mistakes going on. God has a hold of you. Isn't that great? And he's, and he's working things out, everything out. We know that God works all things together for good, right? Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Just implant it deep in our hearts, Lord, as we try to grasp as through the eyes of these guys who knew so little about you. What little Abraham knew, what little Isaac knew, what little Jacob knew, and what little their 12 sons knew. And Joseph understood your heart and your nature of mercy and forgiveness. And, and then almost 400 years goes by, and, and, and now we see this next moment in time these people really had almost no knowledge of you at all. The millions of people that came from the 12 sons are, are now so distant from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and Moses doesn't even know how to begin to explain who you are. And as we, Lord, put ourselves in their place, line upon line, precept upon precept, thought upon thought, revelation upon revelation, let us come to know you because we know Jesus right here in the volume of the book. It's written of you. We know that the manna is you. You are. I am the bread that the Father has given from heaven. Not a bread that your fathers in the desert got and died, but the bread that we would live forever. You are the light. You are the salt. You are uh, the door. You are the resurrection and the life. You are the way, the truth, the life. It's in you, Jesus. We live and move and have our being. Let it happen tonight in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen, amen.